I'm James Homan from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On. My guest this week is best-selling author John Green. John's written novels you've probably heard of, like The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns. He's also written a touching tribute to global health champion Paul Farmer, who died suddenly last month at age 62 in Rwanda. Here is what I want you to know about Paul Farmer. He simply did not accept the idea that inequality of healthcare access is natural or inevitable. Because of his belief, and because of the nonprofit health organization Partners in Health that he co founded, millions of people in some of the poorest nations on earth are alive today. I wanted to discuss with John how Paul Farmer's life has had larger implications for the world, especially after two years of work combating the COVID pandemic. And because it's John Green, we also managed to have an interesting exchange about social media and its role in our lives. Here's our conversation. Hi, John. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for for asking me to do this. I appreciate it. Yeah, we really appreciated your piece, and I'm glad to be able to talk. To start, I'm wondering if you could briefly introduce yourself and explain your connection to Paul. My name is John Green. I'm a novelist and YouTuber. And for the last almost 15 years, my brother and I and the community that grew around our YouTube videos have been supporters of Partners in Health In the last few years, we've been focused on a project to improve the healthcare system in the Kono district of Sierra Leone, which is really the epicenter of maternal mortality in in the world today. When we began this project, one out of every 17 women in Sierra Leone could expect to die in, in pregnancy or childbirth. And Paul and his colleagues at Partners in Health have really been central to reshaping the Sierra Leonean healthcare system so that it better serves women and children. One of the reasons I loved your op-ed is you established something that made Paul Farmer so special, which is his rejection of sensible pragmatism. Uh, As you put it, his, his belief in rejecting the conventional wisdom, he did that in Sierra Leone. He did that in a host of other places, refusing to believe that just because the country was poor, it, it couldn't have better outcomes. Can you talk about that part of his worldview? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think for some good reasons, we pay a lot of attention to efficiency and a lot of attention to cost effectiveness. But when we focus on that, we can forget what's actually at the center of conversations about health, which is the health and dignity of human beings. And part of Paul's genius was his absolute unwillingness to ever compromise on the question of whether we should be doing more. His argument, and I find it to be a very compelling argument, was always, listen, if this was your mother or your best friend or your child, It wouldn't be too complicated. It wouldn't be too expensive. It wouldn't be too logistically challenging. It wouldn't be too anything. You would find a way to get that person whatever health care you can get them. And that's been the mission of Partners in Health 
for decades. That's the way that Paul, I think, really reshaped conversations about global health, because for a very long time, we lived in a world where most people who worked in global health assumed that there was no cost-effective way to get antiretroviral therapy and comprehensive HIV care to people living in poor countries, that there was no way to get comprehensive care to people with multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. And Paul just refused to accept that. And because he refused to accept it, millions of people are alive today. Yeah, and it's not exaggerating to say millions of people are alive. And that's why you've written this op-ed, we're devoting this podcast. I mean, his legacy is 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 really quite dramatic. Paul was vigorously involved in the response to the COVID pandemic, and he prodded the Biden administration to drop intellectual property barriers that prevented pharmaceutical companies from sharing their technologies. Can you talk about how the West response to the pandemic ties into the broader theory of the case that animates partners in health? We like to imagine that we live in a world where diseases have a really good understanding of political borders, and they just don't. And so the fact that fewer than 5% of people in Africa have received any COVID vaccine at all is a real indictment of the global health delivery system, a real indictment of, of the profound inequities in that system. It's also a threat to all of us. It's bad news for everybody. It gives the virus more opportunities to mutate. It's, it's just bad, in my opinion, it's just bad policy. I understand the, I understand why, you know, pharmaceutical companies want to protect their patents. I understand, you know, the role that markets have to play in, in these conversations. But from a human health perspective, we could have far more doses of the vaccine, far, far more doses of the vaccine, if we'd taken a different tack from the beginning. And obviously, the, the best time to have done that would have been a year and a half ago. But the second best time to do it is tomorrow. Yeah. One of the other pieces of Paul's legacy that's important is sort of the whole treatment of the patient. Instead of just giving them the vaccine, when he was working with the Navajo communities, partners and health doctors would prescribe fresh fruit and vegetables. If you ultimately just give someone medication without thinking about the context of their circumstances, it's not going to be as effective. How did that manifest itself and, and how can we all learn from that example. I saw that up close when I was visiting the Kono district in Sierra Leone, and I spent a day with a community health worker named Ruth, who works for Partners in Health and goes through her community every day and visits with patients in her village who have serious health conditions, often tuberculosis or, or HIV, and checks in on them to see if they, they're able to take their medications, what the obstacles are, how, how things are going, how their health is, able to you know, refer them to a clinic if they need more care. And you know, the, one of the first patients we visited, the problem wasn't lack of access to the medication. The problem was that the medication can make you throw up. It can make you really nauseated if you take it without food, and she didn't have any food. And so we think of medicine as being separate from food or health as being separate from nutrition, but of course they aren't separate. 
And if if you can deliver all the antiretrovirals in the world, but if if people don't have the support and accompaniment that they need in order to you know be able to live with that treatment, we're going to have more tragedy. So I think that's a really important part of the PIH mission, and it was a really important part of of Paul's mission as a physician was to understand that we're treating you know, a whole human being here, and we're trying to improve a whole healthcare system here, not just making these kind of individual one-off investments. Right. He called that social medicine. Yeah, that you can't separate. I mean, this was a very important idea to him, that you can't really separate the medical from the anthropological. You can't really separate the social from the medicine. For those of us who aren't fighting this fight every day, what can we learn from that? How do we carry forward Paul's legacy? Right now, I feel really overwhelmed by the number of problems, and it's easy to feel a kind of decision paralysis, like, oh my gosh, there is so much that is going wrong, and there's so much to worry about, and I don't even really, I almost feel this omnipresent worry, like it presses in from every direction, and I'm just constantly spinning, trying to think about this worry, and that worry, and this worry, and it can shut you down in a way. Like something that one of the other PIH co-founders, Ophelia Dahl, once said has really stuck with me, which is that despair is wildly unproductive. Despair just shuts us down. It makes us, hopelessness makes us stop reaching for a better world. And so I have to fight that despair on a personal level, and I think a lot of us do, in order to try to stay engaged and in order to fight for a more just world. And I don't know what the best, where the best place to start is, but I know that the worst place to start is nowhere. <laughs> and so, you know, my, my feeling has always been, you know, let's, let's start where we see hurt. Let's start where we see an opportunity to help and, and then let's, let's get going. And I, I, I saw that a lot in the life of Paul and, and in the story of the organization that he founded and that now will go on. They came to Sierra Leone and Liberia during this horrific Ebola crisis. And when the crisis receded from the headlines, I think Ophelia once said that you could hear the giant sucking sound of all the money leaving all at once. And the healthcare systems in those countries were much weaker than they'd been before the Ebola outbreak. 15% of Sierra Leonean healthcare workers died of Ebola. And so this already really fragile healthcare system was only further weakened, and then the world moved on. It moved on to something else. And the, the mission that Paul took on in his life and that PIH takes on in its work is the mission of staying, of accompanying, of believing that long-term problems demand long-term systemic solutions. And I really believe in that. I saw... Paul speak when I was a student at Stanford 15 years ago, more than 15 years ago now, actually. And I remember something he said very well, which is, I'm not cynical at all. Cynicism is a dead end. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that idea of staying behind, I just thought that that was such a good line that I've, I've always remembered it. And, and he never became cynical. Yeah. And it's so, it's so hard not to be cynical. Like it's so easy to cultivate this kind of ironic detachment to create some distance between yourself and the reality of suffering. It is so hard to lay down those barriers. It's so hard to lay down that armor of cynicism and irony and, um, you know, too cool for schoolness <laughs> and really grapple with the reality of, of suffering and really try 
to, to meaningfully express solidarity, really try to meaningfully accompany people who are going through difficult times. And for whatever reason, that seemed to come naturally to him. And we are all much richer for it. I want to play a clip from a 2015 interview with Paul Farmer when he was in Sierra Leone, where he spoke about reasons for hope. Partners in Health provided the recording. One of the things we're hoping to do is to uh, learn and share what we learn about how poverty makes people sick, how sickness makes people poor, and, uh, you know, looking forward with optimism, because we've got that. We've got optimism. There's no reason for pessimism, um, since we know that these approaches work. It's just that they're never adequately supported and, and financed. So this dull topic of healthcare financing is part of our own quest. How do, how do we learn more about how it is done, how it should be done? The main issue is that anything that slows down an effort to make sure that people do have this basic security uh, is going to slow down the fight on poverty. Can't win the war on poverty without waging a war against early death or suffering or morbidity from uh, disease. We'll be right back with more from author John Green. I want to transition uh, to to talk about a piece you wrote in 2019 for The Post that I have thought of often uh, about giving up social media. Uh, a little bit different. I don't. I don't really know. We we were talking about how do we transition from talking about Paul yeah. Farmer to this great piece that you wrote. Uh, you, you tried to give up social media for a year. Uh, I succeeded, and you succeeded, and you're you're back now. <laughs> I am. Yeah, I succeeded uh, <laughs> for one year. I didn't succeed for the second year. And you did it before the pandemic. I did. Yeah. You have millions of followers. You wrote in your piece. You really did become accustomed to going to, whether it was Reddit or Instagram or wherever, uh, to see what was going on and to combat even the most fleeting feeling of boredom. W- what was that experience like, and how did it change you, if at all? Well, it was really interesting. I mean, I I did kind of give up these, you know, bullhorns that I that I had of of having a large following on Twitter. And honestly, the partners in health work was a big part of what made me feel a little conflicted about that because I I knew that it was an opportunity for me to talk to people for fundraising purposes, just for a, attention purposes about the stuff that was important to me. But ultimately, the feeling I had was that my internet was really broken. And my attention had become hugely fractured so that it was difficult for me to read a book, which is something that's been at the center of my life for decades. And it was difficult for me to pay much attention. I had this constant urge to check and check and refresh and refresh and see what what the newest new thing was. And also, I mean, I guess also in the background, there was this concern that I that I still have that we have ceded a tremendous amount of our shared consciousness 
to private corporations that monetize that consciousness through advertising and their incentives are ultimately not to provide us with information that uh, informs us or that makes us uh, feel more fulfilled. Their incentives are to provide us with whatever information will maximize the amount of time that we spend on that platform so that they can monetize the maximum amount of our attention. And that's, a, I think, a really troubling business model. It troubles me. Like I, I made a, I made a TikTok a few days ago. Um, you bragged about going to Stanford, so I'll brag about this TikTok. I sorry, it's okay. I, I apologize. It's okay. I just didn't know how to. No, yeah, you, it's <laughs> I okay. Hate being that guy. It's, it's listen. <laughs> if I'd gone to Stanford, believe you me, I would have mentioned it. Um, <laughs> I think this is the first time I've mentioned it in the. Oh, you, oh, now I made you feel bad. <laughs> but, um, no, 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 you're right. But, but uh, so anyway, I made you made a TikTok. Made, I'm not on TikTok. I'm very impressed. wow. You, I, you're not on TikTok. It's it's. Uh, <laughs> it's powerful. Um, the Washington Post TikTok is great. Your colleagues are very good at it. So anyway, I made a TikTok where I was like, listen, if this TikTok gets a million views, given the average number of seconds it will be watched, that will mean that one year of human consciousness has been devoted to watching this TikTok. We've devoted, you know, hundreds of years of human consciousness to debating Will Smith's performance in the live action Aladdin movie. Um, I don't know if that's good for us. And I don't know how hard we've thought about whether it's good for us. That said, once the pandemic started, almost immediately, I was like, I, I need the internet back. <laughs> like, I'm lonely. I miss being on Twitter. I miss Reddit. I miss Facebook. And then about a year into the pandemic, I got TikTok. And I mean, it's a whole different ballgame. You ended that op-ed from 2019, and you said, obviously, I need the internet on my computer for work. The internet is not ultimately the problem for my internet to change. I need to change. Yeah, I wonder if I changed. I wonder if I it, changed. It's a good line. It's a good line. <laughs> it is. You know, the thing I've noticed about good lines over the years, though, they can be like clever enough that they can uh, somewhat distort, like they can be clever enough that you can sort of uh, not notice that they're not totally true. <laughs> like, like one of my uh, one of my favorite lines in The Great Gatsby is just a. It's such a beautiful sentence that that you get all the way through it before you realize that that it's not actually true. And uh, my my line at the end of that op-ed isn't nearly as good as Gatsby, obviously. But I do think that I'm not sure that that's true. I, I I do think that I need to change, of course. But I also think the internet needs to change. I think that. You know, we need to think hard about how much of the internet we want to be funded by advertising, and we need to think hard about how much regulation we want um, there to be of these platforms that really do, on some level, decide how we feel. Like when I watch TikTok for an hour, I'm not the one deciding what the next video I see is, and I'm not the one deciding how I am emotionally impacted by that video. So I think that it's a little more complex than merely me needing to change, although I I, I do need to change. Well, no, and that's a, that's a really good point. And that's one of the, it feels like society has shifted in that sense too over the last you know three years since you wrote that piece, which is, I think three years ago, I would have said the same thing. Like I've spent way too much time on Twitter. Uh, I need to, change that. And there has been this recognition. You even heard President Biden talking during the State of the Union about the 
problems of social media and impacts on teens and the algorithm and a lot of what you're talking about, which is that it's not just on each of us that there are these societal impacts. And I guess that is one of the ways to transition it to back to the the important work that, that Paul was doing and that Partners in Health continues to do, which is trying to change these systems. Absolutely. Yeah. So we tend to think so much about the efforts and exploits of individuals when we talk about the internet or when we talk about global healthcare delivery, or when we talk about history in general, right? We tend to focus on individuals and their heroism or, or, or villainy. And there is plenty of individual heroism and villainy, of course. But the truth is that, you know, so much of our lives, what really shapes them are our systems. And that's information delivery systems when it comes to Twitter. And so the, the decisions that those systems make, the choices that those systems make, impact the world that we share in, in big ways, just as the quality of our water distribution systems or the quality of our transportation systems or the quality of our manufacturing systems, you know, really profoundly shape the world that we share. So I do think there's a connection there, actually, because we've got to start thinking about these systems, who they serve, how they serve us, and how we can strengthen them. Absolutely. John Green, thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Really appreciate the opportunity. Let's close out by hearing a clip from Paul Farmer himself from a documentary about partners in health called Bending the Arc, which, by the way, is currently available on Netflix. To pull a million people out of poverty in the last several years, to build stable institutions where none existed, to me that is about hope. And it's about rejecting despair and cynicism. Yes, there are people who are cynical about it, but, you know, they're wrong. Paul kept in touch with many of his patients, and they were part of the outpouring of grief after his death. One obituary said he was godfather to more than 100 children, most of them in Haiti. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, with editing from Allison Michaels, Michael Duffy, and Renita Jablonski. This episode was mixed by Veronica Simonetti. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. The show notes include a link to John Green's op-eds. If you enjoyed this conversation, please give us a rating and review. It helps new listeners find us. I'm James Hillman, and I'll be back next week because there's always more to say.